You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. All right. Good morning, Crossroads. Good morning to everybody online as well. It is so good to be here with you all, and it's nice to see the church all packed out again. You can clearly see people have, everybody has returned from holiday, and I'm excited for you to get back to work. I'm excited to go on holiday, actually. So um, <laughs> I've been here every Sunday, and it's been a lot of fun. So this is our last Sunday in our Missions Month series. And I'm really, I've been really privileged to be able to lead us through the series to preach on the different world religions. And I'm excited to wrap it up this morning, and I hope I do the topic justice. Now, Missions Month normally is that time where we as a church, we ask ourselves, how do we engage with the world? And with this series, what we've done is we've simply asked ourselves the question of Jesus Christ gave us the command to love our neighbor. And the question we ask ourselves is, well, who is our neighbor? And in the world that has changed, we've realized that our neighbor most likely is someone who does not think like me, does not look at the world like me, and most likely believes something very, very different than me. Now, over the last few weeks, we've looked at Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam, and I'm not going to recap anything I said there, but I just want to highlight some key highlights, because I think it's important, because today's conversation is very different from those that we've had so far, right? So what we discovered when we looked at Hinduism, we discovered that indeed there is a God, a God that stands over all of creation, and that God is active within creation, and this God not only desires to be known but does indeed make himself known. Right? That's really, really important. That our perspective, our view of God is that he is intimate and relational and is with us. Right? Sorry, this is a cable. Right? When we talked about Buddhism, we discussed suffering quite a bit. And we discovered in Christianity, suffering in the hands of God has a redemptive nature. Which I think is beautiful. It's not something to be avoided, although obviously not desired. But when suffering takes place, we trust that God is going to use that suffering and work transformation in our lives. And we see that not only in our own lives, if we reflect on suffering in our own lives, but we see that very much on the cross where Jesus died and gave his life for us. And what did that do? I've got the Afrikaans word. It is what brought about salvation for you and me. And we talked about Islam. We reflected a bit on how Islam, in a way, is moved back to the old law. And we reflected a lot on Jesus as the Son of God and the importance of that and his death and resurrection on the cross. And why is that important? Because we know as humans we just cannot get to God ourselves. We needed grace and mercy. And that is something only God can provide. And there's no way for us to restore our relationship with God. Now, this morning, we are moving to a conversation. I've just t- titled it Human Secularism, or Secular Humanism, if you will. And the terminology is problematic if you've studied this at all. Um, most human people will probably just refer to themselves as humanists. Some would refer to themselves as secularists. Depending on the literature you read, it is kind of used interchangeably. Right? This is a topic I am... Not too familiar with, because I don't come from a, from a humanist worldview. Where I come from, I grew up as a Christian, and I had to really dig into, just build an, a bit of an understanding of this worldview. 
And one of the challenges, though, and why it's important for us to have this conversation, we noted in the beginning, is that in the Netherlands, there's a 52% likelihood that your neighbor is someone who is unaffiliated, that meaning does not connect with any of the major religious traditions of this world. Right, so it is a very broad category, and I just can't cover the whole unaffiliated category. So I had to zoom in on humanism as a specific category within the unaffiliated group. And if I can quickly get that slide so we can just get some context on this. This is just a bit of a broad overview of world perspectives, of world views. So in the, in the top there, you have theism and monotheism and polytheism. That's kind of the religions we have discussed. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. Islam, Judaism affirms the same. Hinduism, as we discussed, is a monotheistic religion, but it also, depending on how you view the deities, is also a polytheistic. Buddhism, on the other hand, kind of falls a bit more into that agnosticism category as kind of the statement of, we don't really know whether there's a God or not. Right? So whether there is or whether there's not, we just can't know. Right? And Buddhism doesn't really make an affirmation that there is a God, but it also doesn't make a clear rejection whether there is a God, depending on the school of thought you follow. But today we're focusing on this non-religious, unaffiliated group. Right? And I can also probably term it the atheistic group. Now, this is separated into two categories, the secularist group and the post-theistic group. Now, just importantly, just on terminology, secularism, obviously in a political sense, is often referred to as the separation between church and state. Right? So it's really the separation between those realities. In religious studies, it really refers much more to, it's a bit of a broader term, refers to the relegation of um, or not the relegation, the negation of anything that is theistic or beyond natural, right? So, and then you have post-theism, that is more, um, where to go? So that is, um, I just had the term in my, it is esoteric, I think that's the right word. Manuel, can you help me? Esoteric communities. It's kind of communities that claim they have a specific knowledge or practice um, that is, gives them some sense of peace or joy through various practices. So a lot of New Age movements will fall into this category. You also have occult practices within the, in this post-theistic movement, which have, again, the idea of some mystical arts or practices that they perform. But again, very specific knowledge, only available to a very specific small group of people. So jumping back to secularism, you have three movements in there. Anti-theism, that is a very strict form of secularism that says religion is the worst thing that ever could have happened to humanity and should be negated from society altogether, right? So that's a bit of extreme form. I will not be looking at that. Apatheism, I think that is actually a very large group of the unaffiliated. Apatheism kind of just refers to people who have actually just not put too much thought into whether they believe or, in this case, don't believe, all right? And then humanism, we are going to dig into now in a big way. All right. So... As always, I want to start with the scripture reading. And as always, what I want you to do as I read the scriptures, lay hold of what I'm reading, and as I reflect on the tradition, and in this case, humanism, um, which is not necessarily a religion per se, but use the text to kind of reflect on how Christianity separates itself from this worldview. It's a very beautiful passage, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest 
of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Let us pray. Now, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, we gather as a church this morning, I, I'm humbled <laughs> again to, to read the weight of your words and of your actions, that you laid down your life for us. And Lord, I pray so that we will take up your example as we seek to love our neighbors May we lay down our own lives for them, sacrificially loving them as you did for us. Lord, give us wisdom as we go through these texts. And Lord, yeah, inspire us and give us the boldness as we just sang and prayed to love our neighbor, I pray. Amen. Now, already said, Humanism is really a, a worldview that, before I moved to the Netherlands, was so far from my reality. In, in South Africa, it's not really something that is talked about. I mean, I grew up singing worship songs in school pretty much every single day. We had Bible studies in school. It's just a whole, whole different world. Coming to the Netherlands, it's a whole different story. And I've had to kind of come to grips with that, and I had to actually do some work to understand, well, what is this worldview? And I've been fortunate to, to go to university the last two years to actually study interreligious relations. And part of that course, we did secularism, we did humanism, and also how that relates to different religious traditions. So I hope I have something to share with you. But again, the conversation is really difficult, because where do you start with humanism? When we discussed the other world religions, it was quite easy. We can go to their points of origin. They've got some text that we can read, and we have some clear handles on what the other people, the other religious other beliefs. But for humanism, we just don't have that. So I kind of had to structure my own history of the development of thought as to where we come to humanism. But maybe just for those who are really interested, if you're interested in philosophy, I would recommend the book of Charles Taylor, The Secular Age. If you want to understand the church's response to secularism, Leslie Newbigin's book, um, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, is really, really insightful. And then if you want to look at some rational arguments for the existence of God, Tim Keller's, um, Timothy Keller's, sorry, is, um, The Reason for God is a really, really, really good reference for that. I'm not going to be looking at that at all. This is really a conversation about how do we love our neighbor, not how do we argue with them, right, and defend our faith, right? right? Although that has its place within apologetics. All right. So my overview of humanism starts all the way back in the 1400s. So in, um, what's the date, 1453, you have the fall of Constantinople, which was the center of the, the Eastern Roman Empire. It was, uh, it fell to the Ottoman Empire. And what happened during this time, you had 
a lot of monks and philosophers at that time, they actually moved to Italy. And you kind of have the emergence of the Renaissance period because of this, where the rediscovery of the Greek and Roman philosophers, the likes of Plato and Aristotle, and the reintroduction of rational reasoning within Western Europe. So very important when I talk about humanism or secularism, I'm really reflecting on Western Europe's understanding thereof, right? The unaffiliated group is actually very large, especially if you go to the East, um, like the, the likes of China. I've got no cooking clue how that worldview works. I'm thinking about Western Europe conceptualization. But so we have the Renaissance, and the Renaissance reinvited existential questioning, but is marked really by an explosion of human creativity and um, the discovery of human potential, really. That is the Renaissance period. Then moving on, in the same period, in the 15th century, this is not normally categorized part of the history of humanism, but that is the Reformation. Right? And it plays a very important role within the development of this. Because what happened with the Reformation is you had, for the first time, some real critique on the church, questioning the authority of the church, and specifically that idea of questioning the power of the church. And what followed past Reformation is what we call the European Wars, which led to quite a lot of conflicts, which kind of gives you an idea of understanding the Enlightenment period, right, which followed from the 16th through the 18th century. And a, remar a marked shift happened from the Renaissance period to the Enlightenment. In the Renaissance period, the philosophy was really focused on the philosophers of the past, on Plato and Aristotle, those guys. In the Enlightenment period, it was the conceptualization of new ideas. So you have the likes of Descartes and um, Spinoza, who really tried to figure out, well, what is this life? Ask questions really, and how does things work? It was not so much focused on, on existential questions, but there's a lot of philosophical questions just on the nature of life. So I think you all know the, the famous Descartes statement um, of, I think, therefore I am. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, I am. Sorry. He's a philosopher sitting in front of me, so I need to be careful. Um, then after this, right, after this period, so you also have to kind of see the, the, the Enlightenment period as a kind of rejection to the European wars that followed the Reformation. And really the question of the day was really one of autonomy, right? What is my own personal freedom, but also my own personal empowerment of the individual? Right, so these are philosophical ideas that tie into this. Then modernity, the rational thought progresses a step further. In that the rationalism moved, so with the Renaissance, when, that, when rationalism kind of entered into the, the public domain, there was still very strong agreement that the church has authority in the life of, of society and was seen as authoritative. But by the time of the modernity, this was really put into question. So you have um, a big emphasis that suddenly in the modernity, that this is now from the 1800s onwards, that we can come to holistic, a holistic worldview just purely by rational thought. Although there was still, and there was kind of a movement, uh, the idea that hey, religion will eventually just fade away, will become a thing of the past. Rational thought will become the dominant way of looking the thought at the world, although by now I think we know that that has not been the case. But that it is possible to come to a worldview that is purely based on rational reasoning. 
That is kind of at the core of the time. And you had different philosophers at the time. Um, I want to just mention Voltaire and Holbach. Voltaire kind of had the idea that, hey, we should promote religious tolerance, that religion actually has a bit of a role to play just for the sake of preventing chaos. Right? So no, not a real positive view of religion, but hey, we just need to kind of control the masses with religion. But Holbach, on the other hand, had that kind of anti-theistic view. Religion is the cause of all this pain that the world has experienced. We need to get rid of that. Modernity was marked by extreme human optimism, that the world is controllable and we have the ability to create society and create meaning and value just through rational thought. Then um, I'm going to jump all the way back to specifically the Netherlands. So in the 1850s, you have the establishment of the Vereniging. Um Today it's called the Freie Gedachte, apparently. Um, and this kind of led to, and since the 1850s, you really have the use of humanism as, in the Netherlands especially, as a worldview. Right? And in the 19, just after the Second World War, you have the establishment of the Humanistische Verbond, or, uh, sorry, in, in 1945 it was called the Religieuse Humanistische Verbond, and then in 1946 it changed to the Humanistische Verbond. Now, jumping just past the, the Second World War. So before the World War, this kind of still stayed. Rational thought was important for philosophers, but it didn't really integrate within the life of society. And I think what the Second World Wars, or the World Wars actually did, it unsettled the position of the church, in, of religiosity within Europe in a very big way. And two concepts here that I want to highlight. Sorry, there was, there was a move from, from, from modernity to post-modernity. Modernity was kind of very idealistic about um, our human nature, where post-modernity kind of becomes very, much more sober after the world wars, um, just an ontological rationality. So I know this is very philosophical. I'm going to get to scriptures in a moment. Um, but there are two concepts, right? The first one is that humanity is an answer relation to, in an answer relationship to creation, right? It doesn't give answers for why we exist or how we exist, but because we exist, we need to give an answer for that. So the rational thought tries to answer that kind of question. Secondly, um, is called what they term entangled humanity. It's just the realization that, hey, within humanity, there are a lot of different relations. We stand in a kind of a reciprocal relation to everything that exists. And that it kind of becomes the basis for ethical thought. All right. So just a very interesting note. In the Netherlands... It's interesting if you read some of the literature. Initially, like here in the early 19, um, early 2000s, the thought was that the Netherlands will follow this secular project and by the year 2050 will reach that 50% mark of about where we are at now in 2022. So the Netherlands, in a big way, has progressed down this humanist project much faster than almost any other nation, which is... Extremely striking if you actually look at it on a global stage. Because nowhere, nowhere else in the world do you actually see this. There's actually a big resistance in most parts of the world against the humanist movement. And the question we need to ask is why that has happened. So, I've picked three, I wrote down core beliefs. Obviously, humanists don't call, would not term them beliefs. But core beliefs or core viewpoints of a humanist worldview. One is the affirmation that there is no God, or at least that, that if there is a God, that there is absolutely no relevance to that God. If 
for our human existence. Right? That would be a first departure point for humanist thought. And the argument is simply that through rational argument, we can come to a holistic worldview for why we exist, why we are here, and have lives that have value, that are moral, and that have meaning. That is the rational argument that for no God. Then the second point is that it is very egocentric. Right? I don't think they would necessarily state it themselves, but it really, the big emphasis of humanism is human freedom. Right? Your, I forgot the word now. Um, emancipation is to be free to be able to do your own actions. Right? That there's nothing impeding you in what you want to do, what you want to decide, and that you are empowered to be able to do that. Humanism. And with that, I would add, let me go here. I had an interview last year with a leader from the Satanic Church, which kind of falls in that post-theistic worldview I spoke about earlier. And his simple statement is this. I started as an atheist, and then I realized I am God, and the universe revolves around me. And then it goes a step further, I exist as my core value is simply to lust after life. The notion of self-gratification of the self. Core value of humanism, right? Obviously, that would be extreme thereof. I don't think most of your neighbors would necessarily express it that harshly. All right, I hope not. Um, but if I say these things, I hope it gives you a bit of a tingle, like a tingle up your spine. That something about that just doesn't sound right to us as Christians. And I think if you add that notion of self-gratification, especially in the day and age that we live in, it's also a thing of instant gratification. That nothing can be delayed. I need to do it now, and I need to be satisfied now. Then the third one is the golden rule. So humanists kind of affirm that all religions everywhere have affirmed this kind of idea that do unto yourselves uh, or do unto others as you would want to do unto yourselves. It's kind of the core ethical philosophy for how we should treat our neighbors. And I will point out a bit later as well that most, time, most of the time they actually phrase this in the negative because, again, what is important for humanists is that freedom and an autonomy. So, again, I don't know what another person actually wants because he has his own freedom and power to decide what he wants. So I can't really get there. So it's much easier for me to phrase that as a negative and saying, don't do to others that I wouldn't want to do unto myself. So it's a negative thing. So I just kind of keep to myself. It kind of builds an idea of isolation. Now, what is our Christian response? I need to be very mindful of time, sorry. Um, I think this is still worth noting. There's a, there's a very interesting development within religious studies of late where they kind of trace the development of secularism against the line of the decline of Christianity. And one of those philosophers is um, Jill Anijar, and he kind of makes the argument that secularism is Christianity and Christianity is secularism. And I'm going to explain to you how he gets there. I'm going to quote him. He says, Christianity actively disenchanted its own worldview by dividing itself into private and public, politics and economics, and indeed religious and secular. 
He continues to say, he says, It turned against itself in a complex, ambivalent series of parallel movements, continuous gestures, rituals, reformist and counter-reformist, revolutionary and not so revolutionary, while slowly coming to name that to which it ultimately claimed to oppose itself, religion. It attempted to liberate itself, and I'm going to skip a lot of this, and it says, Christianity judged and named itself, it reincarnated itself as secular. And the reason why he does it, he builds this on the idea that when secularism started to formalize throughout this history that I kind of just covered, it happened against the backdrop of nation building, right? And pluralist societies, nation building, very important there. And two, of a predominantly Christian background. And he says that secularism is very much strongly infused with Christian values and narratives. And that's kind of the point I want to make. And you can kind of see that. I don't know if I completely agree with him, but if you you're in the Dutch side, I find it such a bit of an such kind of almost like a kind of oxymoron. If you're here and you speak to non-religious people, they want to send their kids to a Christian school. I don't understand that, but yet some kind of understanding that Christian values is what we believe and hold on to. You see it in politics when we when they use all kinds of rhetoric to talk about immigration laws of the religious other. Is not allowed here. We celebrate Christian holidays, which is kind of an oxymoron when you talk about humanism in its pure sense. And yet there's this link, a very unique link between secularism and humanism, I mean, and Christianity. But what is our Christian response? First one I pointed out was God. For them, we, there's no need of God because we can come to a full understanding of reality, just through rational thought. We as Christians completely disagree with that departure point. Our story begins and ends with God. And part of our understanding of humanity is that humans are essentially religious beings. A lot of theologians, philosophers, or Christian philosophers, they would write that we have an inert desire to worship. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. See, as Lewis kind of writes it so beautifully, he says that if I find within myself a desire that nothing on this earth will satisfy, I must conclude that I was created for another world. I just love that. Jumping to Philippians 2, the picture we have there of God. Timothy Keller, he kind of explains the passage so beautifully as a causative passage where it says that Christ, who in the very likeness of God, gave himself up. And Timothy Keller explains it as a little child, or not as a little child, as, a, as Timothy being a kind person helped the old lady. Right? Because Timothy was a kind person, that is what he did. What Paul is doing in that passage, according to Timothy Keller, is saying, because he was God, he had to give himself up. It's a powerful conceptualization of who God is. And that in the face, especially if we're talking about freedom, of autonomy and empowerment, what does that mean for God to give up his freedom, to lay down his power, so to speak, as God for the sake of us? Very, very powerful understanding. Now, the likes of Timothy Keller do a great job of apologetics, of building a rational argument for why we can believe in God. Leslie Newbegin would kind of, he agrees with that, but he says we've gone too far. 
in the rational thought. We've kind of taken a step, a defensive stance against the secularist movement. And he says it's important to also hold on to the irrational side of our faith. And irrational is not that it's irrational, but there is something unbelievably amazing about the gospel, that God would become a man and give his life for us. That is really hard to conceptualize, rational. And I think C.S. Lewis would then kind of say, it's not something that man could have made up. There's something divine about this narrative, which makes it exceptional in the face of purely rational thought. Then, secondly, on egocentrism, this is something we find within the Christian church quite a bit as well, is we've adopted a lot of the secularist movement of humanism, and you get what we call Christian humanism, a positive affirmation of our humanity within the Christian faith. And there's something beautiful about that. In Genesis, we are created in God's image. We are Christ's image bearers on this earth. There's something beautiful about that. Owen McManus is one of the, a well-known uh, pastor in, that, in, in, in America. He wrote a book on the artisanal soul, which kind of unpacks that. The more I follow Jesus, the more human I become. That's kind of his argument. But I need to caution with that thought line as well. Because as Christians, we also hold on to Paul's teaching of the nature of sin. That all of us have fallen short. All of us are broken and weak and incapable of perfect lives. That is foundational to our Christian faith, foundational to our understanding of the gospel. The church fathers wrote that sin is to be bent inwards onto yourself. That is a striking image in the face of humanism which idolizes our human capacity to greatness. To be bent inwards onto yourself. And the last one, the golden rule. I already said a few things about this. As Christians, we do not refer to the golden rule in the negative. It is always a positive affirmation in how we treat others. And it's more than that. It is not just treat others as you want to be treated. It is love your neighbor. And the description of loving your neighbor is sacrificial in the Bible. Always is. Why? Because we're created in God's image. And if God is sacrificial in his very nature, something of us needs to be sacrificial as well. And the beautiful thing I have found, right, over and over and over again, is that as I lay down my life for others, as I serve and give to others, I actually experience tons of freedom and empowerment in doing that. It's just the whole reversal of the humanist worldview. And C.S. Lewis, I, sorry, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis, you might have noticed, but uh, I mean, he kind of speaks of that prideful nature as the complete anti-God state of mind. And so as we look beyond ourselves to our neighbors, to love them, to serve them, to invite them into a relationship, life happens and they can meet and I want to conclude with this. I'm not going to, I'm going to skip quite a few of this, but I want to end this series just by inviting you to share your faith. And I know for a lot of us, that is a really difficult task. A lot of us are actually uncomfortable with share, just even talking about our faith with people who are unbelievers. How do you even start a conversation? And I want to invite you just to do three, two things. Just to practice hospitality.
It is the easiest thing you can do. It's been our theme for this entire year. Come to the table. Invite your neighbor for a meal. It is the easiest, easiest thing you can do. And put no strings on your expectations for that meal. And the most beautiful thing will happen. The stranger will become a guest. And just maybe the guest will become a friend. And a relationship will form. And then the second thing I want to invite you to do is to fall in love with your own story. If you're sitting here, I hope you've experienced the love of Christ. The depth of his love for you and what he has given up for you. And get familiar with what that has meant for you as an individual. And then as you share life with the religious other, may they to come and see the hope and love you have and the joy and community you experience because of what Christ has done. It's that, that simple. Amen. Thank you for listening and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.